0: Excited to uh, bring to you guys the word this morning. And um, as I looked over this text, it just reminded me that um, when I was a kid, I had this almost overwhelming desire to have fun. And maybe that's not unlike most kids. Maybe that was because I was the only child until I was 17. Uh, But I always had this overwhelming desire to want to have as much fun as often as possible. And fortunately for me, the Lord saved me while I was still in high school. And consequently, I had the opportunity to go on several Christian trips while I was growing up and have some of the most fun of my entire life. Whether it was on national or international mission trips or sometimes summer camp, or even there was those special times at church where we would just, after church, go to Sonic or just hang out at someone's house after Disciple Weekend or something like that. We had a lot of fun together as a community. My first paid job was actually at a uh, summer camp, at a children's camp. And it was for elementary age kids um, just outside of my hometown on the far east side of Gainesville. And that night, there was a really special night where several of the leaders and the counselors gathered together uh, right outside of the lake on the campground. And we built a fire and we sang some of our favorite worship songs. It was such a powerful experience and a unique night because for one of the few times of my life, I was surrounded by people who love Jesus and music. That night we sang to the Lord um, and it was special because these people had talent and they had musical knowledge and we just played and sang and raised our voices to God for hours just outside of that lake. And it was a lot of fun. And as I thought back to some of my most memorable and joyous experiences in life, that was definitely one of them. Many in the world have a hard time with Christianity because they misunderstand our faith. A great number of people would say that they really want to enjoy their lives so they don't want to become Christians. Living for God and practicing faith is to them dull and boring and lame. But the reality is that Jesus came to give joy, not to take it away. Our text this morning says that Jesus is assuming the role of the master of ceremonies, and he is going to ensure that the party goes on. As pastor and professor Dr. Tony Marita has once said, he has come to give the best joy. He turns what was a dreadful situation into this dynamic soiree. And so we've been going through the Gospel of John, and this is uh, we've been doing this since the second week of the year, and I'm delighted this morning to continue to take us through this amazing book. So read with me John chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 again. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what has this to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. My first point this morning is an inconvenient hour, an inconvenient hour. And we're going to see that Jesus is the son of man and get a really good glimpse into his humanity. Jesus humanity. I have to warn you as we begin to kind of work through this text that I'm not going to say everything that you can possibly say about this verse of Scripture here before us this morning. The word itself is inexhaustible, and so there's going to be some things that we're not going to talk about. But I want to try to hone in on a few principles and ideas from God's word that I believe that God is trying to communicate to his people. One of the things that we see here is that this is the first of seven signs in the gospel of John. And the entirety of John is about Jesus being displayed as both the Son of God and the Son of Man. He is the Son of God and the Son of Man. A couple weeks ago when Kevin introduced us to the book of John, he said that the Apostle John's focus is to really give us a glimpse into the deity, the humanity of Jesus. He was truly God and truly man. And there is so much in this passage this morning that initially shows us his humanity. Notice that he is invited to a wedding. Our Savior was human enough to be invited to a wedding. He was a real man. And that baffles us. People liked being around Jesus. His presence and his participation meant something to those who were gathered at this wedding. That's why they invited him. They knew that with Jesus comes grace, and with grace comes gladness. He was a person who went to weddings and participated in social gatherings just like other people did. Notice that he's with his family. He has a mother and brothers and probably sisters, and he has friends, his disciples, who are with him. They were with him enjoying the festivities. Let's look at the wedding. I love weddings, don't you? A wedding is just a massive, long party. And there are few things that can be as fun as a wedding can be. I'll never forget 2020, uh, the COVID year, because during 2020, while COVID was going on, we had Adelathea. Nine couples get married. And um, I just noticed a couple seconds ago that two of those couples who don't live in Gainesville anymore are here this morning, which is really cool. Perfect timing. Um, We had nine couples get married. And that was just this amazing year. For us as church leaders, a super busy year, super busy time. Uh, But it was a great, great, great year for us. And in my life personally, I've had the privilege of being in 10 different couples' weddings with the last two being the two weddings that I officiated. And in the providence of God uh, last Sunday and the Sunday before that, both of those couples, one who lives in Georgia and the other couple lives in Minnesota, both of them were here. It was almost like, and this was totally unplanned by me, it was almost like God was setting me up for this sermon. The most important event in the ancient world in the life of a village or community was a wedding this was a party that exceeded all of the parties in the life of the community nine miles away from nazareth which itself was only a town of 500 people was a small village called cana and during jesus's time cana probably only had a few dozen people many practiced agriculture and either of those two small villages And they farmed together, and consequently, they socially connected with one another. And because Cana was as small as it was, a wedding was a large event. One of Jesus' disciples, even, Nathaniel, who in some other Gospels is called Bartholomew, he was from Cana. So this is very familiar territory to Jesus and his disciples And some scholars believe that weddings would start in the middle of a week and go on for days, maybe even up to seven days is how long a wedding in the ancient world would last. Weddings are important to God. He instituted marriage in Genesis chapter 2, and this covenant that is made before all in attendance and even the world at large means a whole lot to God. Throughout the Old Testament, Weddings and marriage have been symbolic of God's relationship with his people. The book of Hosea powerfully displays this among many other places in the word. Paul even tells us in Ephesians that marriage is a mystery that shows us the love that Christ has for the church in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 32. And we don't have this morning enough time to go through all the implications of the, the, the symbol that a wedding is in and of itself, But continue with us as we work our way through Scripture verse by verse and book by book, because we're going to get there at some point. This wedding also has a problem. Let's look at the problem. If you've ever been to a wedding, and I'm sure most of you have, most of you um, have participated in your own weddings, you know that at some point there's going to be a problem. It's inevitable, isn't it? The problem at this wedding was that the wine ran out. This was a a ruinous situation. This was a social disaster. You see, it would take the couple years to get over the embarrassment and the shame and dishonor that would come because the wine ran out. It would not be unusual in the ancient world for the bride's family to sue the groom over this oversight on his part. And here we see Jesus' mother, Mary, coming to let him know that the wine ran out. And your first question when you initially read this has to be, what does this have to do with Jesus? He's just a guest of this wedding. The world doesn't know that he's the Messiah yet. No one knows except a few people like his mother. You see, she comes to Jesus with this problem because she knew that he was the only one who could fix it. She knew that he had the power to do anything. And from our standpoint, it doesn't appear as though Joseph is around. We don't hear him mentioned anymore throughout the Gospels. Jesus' earthly father, he's gone, and so perhaps now Jesus is the man of the house. He was clearly a leader, having followers now, and can you imagine what it must have been like to have Jesus as a child growing up in your home? He always had the perfect answer and the best solution to any problem. In verse 4, we see Jesus address his mom as woman. And I know for some of you, this makes you bristle a bit. You know, you feel like he's being disrespectful and he's putting his mother down because he's not addressing her as mother. But this is not a sinful dishonoring of his mother because he never sinned. Exodus 20 verse 12, Hebrews 4 verse 15 but I do believe that there are a couple things that are being communicated here. In our culture, we would not address a woman by woman unless we mean disrespect. That is how our culture works. But back in the culture of the first century, things were different. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross and he was speaking to the apostle John about his mother? He said these words in John 19, verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. What is clearly meant in this text is a tender, kind, compassionate plea for his mother to be taken care of. In our passage today, we can read similar meaning into Jesus' words. It would be like saying lady in English or a madam in French. This is a polite, courteous expression. But more importantly than that, his public ministry is now beginning. She and he would have a different relationship moving forward. Previously, she was his mom. She had a position of authority over him. But now, she is a woman like any other woman. She is a person who needs his grace and his forgiveness and his power like any other person would. He makes this new reality very clear that they have a different relationship by addressing her not in familial terms, but as God would address any person, as God would address any woman. She was no longer dealing with her son, but the son of God. And so he pushes back. On his mother reminding him that, he pushes back on his mother by reminding her that his hour had not yet come. And what does this mean? What is his hour? When Christ refers to his hour, he's speaking of his hour of death, his public death on the cross. And these are just a few passages that speak to that reality. John 7 verse 29 says, I know him, for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Or John 8, verse 19, which says, They said to him, Therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Or even John chapter 12, verse 23, which says, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Or finally, John 13, verse 1, which says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. When he speaks of his hour, he is talking about his death, that time where he will be a sacrifice for sinners. That was the moment where he would shed his blood for our forgiveness and reconciliation to God. That hour had not arrived. It wasn't time for everyone to know yet. Once they knew who he was, he knew that they would immediately try to kill him. Even this miracle, his first public act, was done for a select few at a wedding where most of the people praised the groom, the man being married, rather than Jesus. He displayed his power to a select few of his close family and friends. In the closing days and weeks and months after the D-Day landings of June 6, 1944, during World War II, the world witnessed the opposite of a joyous wedding feast. Instead, they saw the sad and shameful fruit of immorality. As Allied troops swept across France, liberating towns and villages to hope and relief, There was also an unexpected series of punishments that followed as well. French women who were accused of sleeping with Nazi Germans were targeted and publicly humiliated. They had their heads shaved, they were stripped half naked in the streets, they were paraded through towns, were stoned and beaten and kicked and spat upon. Some of them were even killed. It is reported that over 20,000 women were brutalized during what the French called the wild purge. Some of these women had indeed done what was later seen as an act of national betrayal. Some of them had only spoken with soldiers or were forced into sleeping with the Nazis. The shame of the act, the shame of the false accusation, the shame of having participated in the public acts of revenge, All of this has left a lasting mark on France to this day. The women thought that the horrors of the war were over once the allies came in and freed them. But the dishonorable public justice that was dispensed shows us the depths of human sin. This shows us our bent towards evil no matter how justified we may feel in our minds. Even our Savior knew that once he, he publicly went out and began to do that which no one else could do, he would be falsely accused and publicly rejected. It's so interesting that Jesus is going to ask, what does this have to do with me? And then he ends up intervening anyway. It's my belief that he only intervenes when he sees the faith of Mary, when he sees how great her faith is. You see, faith is always the trigger that activates his power. Mary displays her faith to the servants when she says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And that is such a small act of faith. And she does that because she has absolute confidence that he can fix the issue, that he can take care of the problem. And she just tells the servants to obey him, and then she just mic drops and walks away and lets them deal with it. Look with me at verse 6 of chapter 2. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. We're gonna see an incomparable miracle. My second point, my last point is an incomparable miracle. We not only saw that Jesus Is the son of man. He shows himself to be a human being by being invited into this normal social gathering like most people would go to. But we're also going to see that Jesus is the son of God. You see, Jesus has an opportunity here to save this wedding. It was a great social issue for there to be no wine at this wedding. The bridegroom had been preparing for this wedding for up to a year. And it's the ultimate indignity to run out of this essential element of celebration. And so how was this man going to prove to the bride's family that he was ready to provide and to protect? Fortunately for him, Jesus was there. The significance of our Lord's first miracle can't be overstated. For 30 years, he had lived in obscurity and humility. But now it was time to begin his public ministry. His first miracle was at a wedding. He doesn't go to the synagogue or to the temple to perform his first miracle. He displays his power at a wedding party. This isn't a scene of boredom or, or anything like that. This is a place of festivity. And how significant is it that he does this in front of his family and his friends? They were the first ones to see and to recognize that he was God in the flesh at this celebration. It is helpful to note here that many Christians are very serious and studious. And well, you should be. Many of those in God's flock are regular in their devotions and the spiritual disciplines, but they lack joy. Christians would do well to learn from this text to celebrate like Jesus did. We attend religious gatherings, but so many of us lack deep and abiding joy. Hear the word of God out of Nehemiah chapter 8. Verse 8 says, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat. And drink sweet wine, and send provisions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, and to send portions, and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Oh, dear Christian, how can we lack deep and abiding joy? I believe that Jesus chose the stone water jars because by turning that much water into that much wine, it would be impossible to deny that a miracle had taken place. You see, these were six massive stone jars, each of which held between 20 to 30 gallons. In total, this is between 120 to 180 gallons. That's a lot of liquid. If it was a small little water container, you could make the argument that maybe this was no miracle at all. He had poured some wine into that little container. But this much wine, out of nowhere, with no publics nearby to buy wine from, was very obviously supernaturally provided. They filled these water jars to the brim, verse 7 tells us. And don't you love how it says, and they filled them to the brim? Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that great English preacher, he said these words. And they filled them up to the brim. There was no fear of anything but water being there. They filled them up to the brim. They obeyed Christ to the letter. If Christ says to you, Fill the water pots with water, fill them up to the brim. Never cut down his commandments, carry them out as far as the largest interpretation can go. When you are told to believe in him, believe in him up to the brim. When you are told to love him, love him up to the brim. When you are commanded to serve him, serve him up to the brim. They did it all the way to the top. And immediately, after filling them with water, Jesus supernaturally turned water into wine. The servants filled the jars with water, but they drew out wine to take to the master of the feast. The simple power of the miracle is a magnificent display of the sheer power of Jesus. He doesn't need time or help or extra ingredients or even a magical ceremony. He doesn't pronounce magical words over the water. It's simply and powerfully transformed from water into wine. He rearranges atoms and molecules with less effort than it takes for you to sit in that chair right now. It took less effort than that. It's been debated as to who said these words, but one of two poets said these words. They said, the conscious water saw its master and blushed. And now, the next part of the story is probably, line by line, one of the most familiar lines of the entire event. The master of the feast called the groom over, that rascal, and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. You see, usually people drank the good wine first, and then much later, a few glasses in, when they didn't know any better, then they drank the cheap wine. And we do this as well, don't we? We have company come over, and they stay long enough, and they eat enough food. We initially run out of that food that we gave them at first. And if they continue to stay long enough, we give them some leftovers. We give them yesterday's food or food from the day before that. But this wine that the master of the feast with his refined palate tasted wasn't cheap wine. No, he said this was the good wine. And our savior doesn't do anything halfway No, he always gives the best wine. He provides the good stuff. This was an excellent, high-quality vintage. And I have to take a moment to refute something that is commonly said about this passage. This wine wasn't watered down. It wasn't more water in it than wine normally has in it. You see, nobody gets this excited over 120 gallons of grape juice. And there are some pastors who are anti-alcohol who like to take this passage and change the plain meaning of the text. This was wine, normal wine. Wine like it is mentioned in all the other books of the New Testament when a New Testament book mentions wine. It's the same word. It's the same stuff. Furthermore, the apostle Luke Tells us in chapter 7 of his gospel. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all of her children. Jesus clearly drank wine. There is nothing inherently sinful or wrong with the consumption of wine. The Apostle John affirms for us that this was indeed the first miracle of Jesus. He tells us this in verse 11. And there are some who find this miracle to be a bit unexciting. It's a quiet miracle. The master of the feast doesn't even know who brought the wine. The groom falsely gets the credit. This is Christ's first miracle, many would ask. This isn't life or death. And this is the way that Jesus starts out. He starts by turning water into wine. The answer to that question is found in verse 11. This was a sign. A sign. It's a sign of the wedding to come. The Bible begins and ends with a wedding. You can double-check me if you like. I don't mind hearing pages turn. This is a sign of the greater wedding party to come. He manifested his glory. He displayed his glory first by turning water into wine. And he made enough wine to last the rest of the wedding celebration and beyond. What a generous wedding present Jesus gave. It would have been impossible for all those people who were assembled to drink up to 180 gallons of wine. He proved to the skeptics in his family and even those among his disciples that he was indeed the creator, God. He was God who made all things. It was an easy, effortless act for him to turn one thing into another thing entirely. Only God could do this. Only God could turn water into wine. Only God could create. Only God could make the good stuff. Jesus was instituting a new day. He turned the old Jewish pots of purification into massive wine jars. Could he have made his point any clearer by the instruments that he used? This is a new day of joy and celebration, of partying, of feasting, of a wedding. Wine in the old covenant was a sign of the blessing of the new covenant to come. Job 3, verse 18. No more special washings were needed, not at the Messiah's here. All that is turned to wine. He was exchanging the water of Judaism with the wine of the new covenant the water of the law and to the wine of the gospel. And I love the words of the British scholar F.F. Bruce who said, Christ has come into the world to fulfill and terminate the old order and to replace it by a new worship, which surpasses the old as much as wine surpasses water. Jesus isn't just a man He is God in the flesh. He is the creator of all things. To quote John from chapter one of this gospel, without him, nothing was made that was made. Here at Alathea, we value God's glory. And we believe that at all times and all places that God should be glorified. And the apostle John tells us that He manifested his glory when he made this incredible miracle happen. This was the first of Jesus' signs. He was about to show all the people several signs that he was indeed who he claimed to be. He was and is the creator God. The glorious Lord of heaven and earth. No one but God could have done what he did. He showed them and us that he had all power on earth. Notice the reaction of the disciples after he performs this miracle. They believed in him because he manifested his glory, his godness. Literally, that word in in Greek is into. They believed into Jesus. In the Apostle John, He warned us that this will happen. He told us in chapter 1, verse 14, and we and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The apostle could testify that Jesus is God because he was there. He was at the wedding at Cana. This is a firsthand account of the glory of God. And after all this, Jesus is so humble that he simply goes to Capernaum for a few days and hangs out with his mother and his siblings and his disciples. Will you see and believe like the Apostle John did? You see, you have a decision to make this morning. Did this really happen? Is Jesus truly the son of God? We worship the Jesus who is God in the flesh. Just like he intervened at this wedding, he is more than capable of intervening in our lives. We can't go beyond his reach. Everywhere is the extent of his power. Jesus hears and answers prayers. He does. And doing difficult things for God by us is possible when we realize that the Jesus that we serve and worship and know is this miracle-working Jesus. There is coming a day when we who have trusted and believed in Jesus savingly will go to another Great wedding. Jesus is the true and faithful bridegroom. Whereas the groom in John chapter 2 failed to be prepared for the wedding, we have a faithful bridegroom who will never fail us. He is the bridegroom from heaven. He came to earth to seek for himself a bride. And he found us. He died for us. The Lamb of God who John the Baptist spoke about has become for us our Passover Lamb who died in our place and forgave our unfaithfulness and reconciled us to himself. That was Jesus. We will be to him married forever. And he will host another great wedding feast. This is what the Bible calls the marriage feast of the Lamb. And we will go to that marriage feast. Revelation 19, verse 6 says these words. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God The Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Our Lord will forever be the Lamb. He will forever be the sacrifice for sin. Even in highest glory, he wants us to remember that he was a sacrifice for sin. He is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, Revelation tells us in chapter 13, verse eight. And in all respects, Jesus is infinitely glorious and full of splendor. But when you see him on the cross, when you see him as a lamb, there is nothing like that sight. And there is a beautiful hymn by Anne, our cousin, called The Times of Sand Are Sinking, which records these words. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand, the Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Have you been invited? Do you crave everlasting happiness and joy? That is found only in Jesus. Only in Jesus. His kingdom. It's one of unceasing celebration. Psalm 16 verse 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what it's like to be in God's presence. Completely contrary to the way that the world views our faith, Christianity, is this picture and window into God. Where is your joy today? If we're going to be a faithful church for the campus and the community, we have to be faithful and accurately representing the community of faith. You see, to know God is to know true, everlasting joy. Is your life marked by joy? The nature of the gospel that we believe in is good news. And with that good news comes joy. Jesus was a man constantly bringing and being surrounded by joy. We're going to see that in all these chapters of John. When he showed up to a funeral, he would always ruin it because he would bring the person back from the dead. You know, he was life, and life couldn't be around death. We just read the verse where the Pharisees accused him of being a drunkard and a glutton falsely he was always having a good time. That was who Jesus was. That is who God is. God is a God full of joy. And you might remember Luke chapter 15, The Pharisees come up to Jesus and they're like, why are you always hanging out with these sinners and these tax collectors? These are horrible people. These are the worst people of our society and you're always spending time with them and you're always hanging out with them. Why are you doing this? And in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three stories. He talks about a lost sheep and he talks about a lost coin and he speaks about a lost son he gives us three stories and part of the culmination of all of those stories is the joy of God he says that that just as when a person has a bunch of sheep and they lose one and then they find it and then they bring that sheep home and they rejoice with all of their friends that's just like what God does and he says, just like when a woman is, is, she has a coin and she loses that coin and she sweeps her whole house and she finally finds it. And then she gets so excited that she tells everybody, that's what God's presence is like. He says, there is joy before the angels of God when a solitary sinner repents and believes. He says, that is what heaven is like. And then his last story, his culminating story in Luke chapter 15 is about a lost son. And this son goes off and he does his own thing and he rejects his father. and He leaves, but eventually he comes to himself. He realizes the separation and how horrible his life is without his father. And he leaves and he comes back to his father. And there is great rejoicing at the end of that story when the father is reconciled with his son. When that story ends, there is music, and there is dancing, and there is celebration. And Jesus is like, this is what the kingdom is like. This is what happens every time a single person comes into God's kingdom. Right now, at this very moment, there is constant celebration in heaven. Because there are people repenting and believing and trusting in the Savior at every moment of Every day, heaven is a place of constant celebration. It's not a place where people have angel wings and they sit on harps and they just play the harp all day. Heaven is a place of joy, of constant celebration. Our God is a happy God. His people should be happy people. We, like he, should be marked by more than happiness. We should be marked by joy. Our Lord told us that by this, all men will know that you are my disciples when you love one another. Have you ever seen someone in love and unhappy? Neither have I. The manifestation of true love is pure joy, joy is a hallmark a Christian. Every Christian knows things about which we can be joyful even in the most dire of circumstances. When all of the reasons for delight are taken away from you on earth, remember that you have a source of joy in heaven that is far superior to every pain that you experience on earth. Far superior. Even Paul and Silas, when they were in the jail, they they were in jail and they were singing for joy because they knew God. And they knew that one day he would safely bring them into his faithful, joyful presence forever. Josh Moody said these words, would you receive his joy again today by his spirit, that supernatural joy that only he can give and let him as it were turn your water into wine. Do you believe, this is a serious question, do you believe that Jesus provides the greatest joy and is your highest good? I can't answer that question for you. You have to ask that question and answer it for you and for yourself in your heart. But I do know that at the end of the Bible, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. At the end of the Bible, we have a new beginning. To so quote C.S. Lewis in his book, The Last Battle, this was only the beginning of another story. It's the beginning of our marriage to Christ in the new heavens, in a new earth. A marriage in which death will not do us part. The happiest marriage of all time. This is the marriage that we've always been intended for, with the most loving and faithful groom. Earlier to this morning, we sang these words, and, and I, I don't know if they really hit you, but the words that we sang went like this: "Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace." Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it. Mount of God's unchanging love. The band's going to come back up right now. And I believe that there's a few questions that you should be asking yourself as we get ready to conclude our service this morning. The first question is: Do you have deep and abiding joy? There's so many circumstances in our lives that would cause us to, to question God or to question the difficulties that we endure but there is a source of joy that you always have access to that you should always be leaning into. Do you have deep and abiding joy? When people interact with you and when they talk about you as an individual, would they say that you are marked by joy? I, I don't think I could have read to you any more verses about joy this morning without having you here forever. So hopefully I've convinced you that this is a mark of a Christian. This is what it means to know and to trust and to believe in God.